if you're sitting on the periphery, if you want to come in, there's plenty of seats here, uh, which might be more comfortable for you. So do feel free to move in if you'd like to. It's great to welcome you here uh, on this Easter evening. Um, and we've had, a, as Lou said earlier, a fabulous day today. Um, it's lovely to have a chance to uh, just to press in a little bit. I want to step back into Luke chapter 23, 30. 2 uh, to 43 tonight. So if you want to grab a Bible from um, there, the Green Bibles, you're really welcome all, all your devices uh, if you'd like to follow on uh, with me. It's uh, Resurrection Sunday, but I just want to step back uh, for a moment into this encounter um, between Jesus and the criminals. Um, so it's Luke 23. 32 to 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place they called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know, know, what, know not what they are doing. Uh, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching as the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourselves and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said to him, then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, it's an amazing story that is often not recounted uh, on Good Friday because we're focusing on Jesus' death. But I, I wanted to talk tonight a little bit about righteousness. I felt really stirred up over the last uh, week or so. And I was wondering if we'd uh, become completely disillusioned with righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but with true righteousness. Righteousness, uh, righteousness with God, the righteousness of God, or the righteousness uh, that we carry in mankind. Over the last 18 months, I think, in the UK, we've been on a bit of a whirlwind journey of disappointment around righteousness, that sort of rightness of being. And um, it's easy to believe that, you know, that, that the next cohort of leaders will demonstrate what it is to kind of be a righteous moral model for us to follow. We're like, oh, yeah, th this person, all my hopes are now in this new person. They're going to be the person who demonstrates the kind of right way of being or the right way uh, of, of leading. And so we, we've experienced a lot of disappointment, disappointment with the moral behavior of political leaders, nations, armies, world leaders. And we continue to live in that disappointment. We've been praying for everything we've been seeing going on on our national screens, but also our international screens. Uh, and I wonder if many of us are having a, a, a righteous crisis. Have we run out of trust that something else good is going to come along to sort of show us the way? And I think the people of the first century were also having a crisis of righteousness in their society. The government was meant to protect them, and it sold them out to Rome. And the provincial governors lined their pockets rather than sought to meet the needs of the people. 
The religious leaders favoured religious observance rather than righteous compassion. So they were brilliant at the law, but they weren't brilliant at kindness. And they were divided against themselves and they were divided against Rome. The poor were marginalised, the rich were elevated, and there was a proportionately huge slave population. And, and so tonight, you know, you might feel like I, I've had a great Easter. It's brilliant to like press into this lovely Easter message. And then you'll go home and you'll switch on the news and you'll be like, oh, another year of feeling disappointed with a lack of righteousness. We're having a crisis of righteousness. And it's easy to be one of those people who think, you know, we're in the greatest righteous crisis of a generation or, or of a lifetime. Has it ever been this bad? You go on Twitter and you think every day is the worst day in history. Um, you know, the, the, sort of, the danger is, you know, we, we, we live in this sort of crisis. We've kind of lost trust. And a crisis of this kind can provoke a, a kind of positive counter-reaction where men and women of courage decide for holiness and righteousness against the prevailing currency of duplicitousness. But equally, a crisis of righteousness can lead us just to give up and become kind of lazy and complicit. So there's two ways of responding to a crisis of righteousness. Uh, one, is, one is revolution, and one is becoming complicit. And I think that the danger with our generations at this time is that it can feel so overwhelming. We're so overwhelmed by what we read and what we see that actually it becomes increasingly hard to be a revolutionary. Revelation should lead to revolution, but sometimes revelation leads us to want to kind of lie down and say, okay, I've had enough now. I'm just going to close down into a small space and just kind of block my ears to everything that's going on in the world and kind of hope for the best. When good men do bad things, we all begin to lose hope. Rag and Bone Man, I think he topped the charts with his single Human, which, you know, that's a good tune. But um, it includes the verse, I'm no prophet or messiah, should go looking somewhere higher. I'm only human after all. I'm only human after all. Don't put the blame on me. Don't put the blame on me. And I was thinking, what, you know, what is it about? I'm not going to try and sing it, by the way, so everyone feels relieved. But... <laughs> You know, I was thinking about that sort of, that, that kind of, is a cultural zeitgeist. You know, I, I feel disappointed. I, I'm, you know, should, you, you might be disappointed in me. Um, how did I end up here in a position of responsibility? How, how did I end up speaking a sort of cultural narrative? Um, I'm only human. D don't blame me for what's going on. You know, I'm only human. We're looking for something better. And in the first century, everyone was looking for something better. And today, we're all looking for something better, something truly righteous. And we need a revolution of righteousness uh, that is going to transform us to revolution, not to becoming complicit and exhausted. And we need a revolution of righteousness that isn't going to be driven by us trying harder in the first instance, trying to be that. We find ourselves perpetually disappointed because something in us secretly believes that there are genuinely righteous people out there. And this is part of the mistake. That, that actually, the gospel said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that no one is righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10 says, there's no one righteous. Paul, who, who wrote Romans, was perceived socially to be extremely righteous. He was kind of a zealous Jew, well-educated, you know, doing the right things, you know, going very hard after the rules, of the Levitical rules. Everyone thought he was an upstanding citizen on every level. And yet he says, of all sinners, I'm the greatest. He's like rag and bone man. I'm only human. Don't put the blame on me. 
stop looking at me. I'm, I'm no one really. I'm, of all sinners, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the most broken. We're all looking around for someone to fulfill our ambition for righteousness, but we've missed the one who could fulfill a vision of righteousness in our lives. Even so, we, we like to try, don't we? Um, I was a religious student to some level. I could acknowledge that my lifestyle was far off track. Uh, I decided to have a revolution of righteousness one day. My friends uh, used to refer to it as my monastic periods. I, I lived with lots of guys who weren't Christians, and, and I would kind of oscillate between just completely losing connection with my faith and trying at all, and, and then like really over trying. And I would like come downstairs in our rowing household and be like, right, today's the day I'm really turning over a new leaf and I'll get my Bible out and they'll all look at me like, here we go. He's on his monastic, one of his monastic periods again and careful, he's going to be self-righteous. I knew I was supposed to give something away, so I remember withdrawing the last 100 pounds from my student bank account and giving it to this Christians in sport group, and they all looked at me extremely uh, suspicious, like, what's he done? What's he trying to pay for? Like, why's he trying to assage his conscience in this way? It was a bit like holding my breath. I was righteous for as long as I could withhold the intense pressure I felt to give up and make a worse decision, which invariably I did. The thing about... God's holiness is that it's a bit like gravity. Wherever you go, it's there. There's this sort of, there's a sense of otherness about God. And we're, we're there sort of feeling the pressure. I can't, I can't match up, but I want to try. I, I'd, I'd rather try and match up in myself than, than have to do it his way. And I, I wonder whether in society at large people feel like that. I'll do everything and anything I can, so long as I don't have to go to church and have anything to do with God. I'll be really good all on my own. We kind of have these monastic periods of, I'm going to try and get it right. And we watch people who are trying to get it right, and then they get it wrong, and we all feel, oh, again. You can dress yourself up in a superhero outfit and launch yourself out of a window with the full intention of flight, only to break yourself against the reality of what is consistently true. Jesus encountered loads of people like me before he was crucified. Nicodemus, the rich young ruler, various Pharisees and Sadducees, all of them thought they could break into righteousness. But what they didn't understand was that righteousness needed to break into them. We, we, we're in danger of being perceived to be the triers. Christians, ah, they're the triers, the tryhards. You know, and, and, and of course, there's effort, there's labor, there's commitment. They're all part of the Christian life, but, but not for righteousness, from righteousness. That the Easter story, this story, is not, it's not God's failed attempt to be righteous. It's God's completion of what is unrighteousness. That he became unrighteousness in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great transaction. You know, in my life of trying, it's the best possible news. It's the greatest exchange. I, I, I would long to be able to explain that to everyone on the street in Fulham. Like, I, I can't work out how to do that without me looking completely weird and looking like I'm trying to be righteous. 
<laughs> which is the sort of oxymoron of righteousness. If I could just somehow explain that Christianity is not about trying harder to be righteous, but it's about acknowledging our unrighteousness and exchanging it for the righteousness of God made known in the person of Jesus Christ, that would be incredible. If I could head into Parliament this week and talk about what it looks like for us all to be unrighteous and yet make this great exchange with God so we can have compassion on the most vulnerable people in our society. I would love to do that. We try and make ourselves righteous when there is only one righteous. That was this Jesus who died between these two criminals. And I find it, I find this kind of amazing paradigm there that there's the one who's saying, oh, if you're the Christ, save yourself. You know, he's like, I've tried to, you know, I'm kind of trying, I kind of tried, and somehow I'm up here, kind of acknowledge my unrighteousness, even though I've been kind of convicted of crimes, and I'm like dying unrighteously, yeah, I'm still here trying to like tell other people, you should try harder, Jesus, come on, be righteous, like get down off the cross, and then the other guy is like, I'm unrighteous, like don't you, don't you know, like other criminal, like, like do you not have any kind of like awareness about why you're up here, like I'm up here as well? I'm not for a minute going to pretend like I'm, I kind of tried and didn't make it. I just didn't make it. This guy, though, he's done nothing wrong. After the French Revolution, a young man attempted to establish a new religion that would be an improvement on Christianity. He found that it refused to get off the ground. And so he went to consult a leading statesman called de Talleyrand. Who, uh, who hardly knew what to recommend. He said, there is, however, one plan that you might at least try. I advise that you should be crucified and rise again three days later. <laughs> to which the young man walked away, feeling slightly perturbed. Now, trying is part of the human condition. Not of goodness, but of folly. Uh, commitment is the joy of the human life, that we commit to Christ, but that we try to be Christ in a sense that we try for righteousness on our own volition, that's the greatest myth that will lead us always falling short. There aren't any good Christians out there, whatever you think. There are no good Christians. There are only Christians. And the Christian is simply the, the, that one who's exchanged their unrighteousness for the righteousness of God, that they've acknowledged like that sinner on the cross, say, I'm up here for a reason. Uh, my punishment is justified, and yet this man has done nothing wrong. Rather than losing hope in righteousness, Jesus gave us his righteousness to restore our hope. And in Luke 23, approaching his crucifixion was the only truly righteous man to ever walk on the earth. His disciple Peter described him, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Imagine if your best friend could say that in witness, in honest witness to your life. His judge, Pilate, released him to the people. Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may find that I find no guilt in him. His judge. Imagine being in court can, accused of a great crime and the judge says, I can find absolutely no reason to convict this person. I can find no guilt in him. Surely this was a righteous man. Yet this righteous son of God was nailed to the cross at a place known as the skull. I think the last words of a dying 
person say more about their lives than much of what precedes that. Right before P.T. Barnum, the greatest showman, died, he asked, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Gardens? Humphrey Bogart's last words were, I should never have switched from scotch to martini. <laughs> Joan Crawford was filled with anger when her maid began to pray out loud and said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Leonardo da Vinci, when surveying his life's work, says, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Some of Christ's last words were, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they are doing. They best illustrate the righteousness of Jesus, not in his profound teaching, his miraculous signs, his supernatural power over death, his compassion for the poor, but in these words spoken in the place of ultimate suffering and death, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Jesus' righteousness is crucial because God's holiness is absolute. If we who are unrighteous are to be restored to the right relationship with God, who is holy, only a spotless sacrifice will suffice. Holy can only remain holy if it's united with holy. Jesus can only make us holy if he himself is holy and can present us to God who is holy if we've been made holy by him. There's a lot of holies in that sentence. But the holy point is actually that that righteousness is not of our own making. It's not in our own effort. It's in this great exchange. Oswald Chambers, who I still read today after 20 years, says there is nothing more certain in time or eternity than what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He switched the whole human race back into right relationship with God. Jesus' crucifixion between these two criminals in verse 32 is a sign to us, not that Jesus had a unique punishment, that he, but that he undeservedly received our punishment. Some people, they're like, well, thousands of people, yeah, Romans, they, they crucified the 3,000 people in one day uh, outside Jerusalem. They were always crucifying people. It wasn't crucifixion that was unique. It wasn't that, that Jesus was the only person to be crucified by the Romans. It was that Jesus' death was undeserved and that he received our specific punishment. Those that sneered and insulted him, including one of the criminals in verse 35, he says, he saved others. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. He fails to understand what's going on in that place. The irony of the cross is that Jesus is saving the people who are asking himself to do just that. This criminal's going, save others, save us. Jesus is like, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, it's like, do you not get it? Like, if I get down off this cross, everyone is going to die. When when he says, save others, save yourself, save us, it's like the enemy's one last attempt to stop God's great exchange. Jesus, humble, sacrificial lamb of God, stays silent, stays put, says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, knowing that he has to die in order that we might live. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't to make the people bow the knee. It was to make death bow the knee. The kingdom wasn't Palestine, it was heaven itself. 
And so the second criminal request to be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Now, like, I like to think about sort of lucky breaks. You know, like, he must have been thinking, I'm having a really bad day. You know, he's like gone through all this scourging, beating, and then finally he's there on the cross. Then there's an argument that breaks out even there, sort of nine feet off the ground, as this other guy starts laying into Jesus. He's like... (laughs) Like, the guy's on his way to death. He's like, really? Is this happening now? And then he says to this guy next to him, Jesus, like, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Can you imagine hearing those words whilst you're there? Like, today you'll be with me in paradise. Can you imagine the relief, the kind of, like, the delight of all that this guy has experienced, all of the horror that we, we experience when we get stuff wrong. This guy is there and he's got nowhere to go. And yet, from Jesus, today, my friend, you will be with me in paradise. You know, we, we can look at that criminal on the cross and like see him from a distance because we're righteous and he is unrighteous. I like to see myself there. I like to think, that's kind of like me just the kind of the end of the day going oh I got stuff really wrong saying to Jesus will you remember me Jesus says yes my daughter my son today you will be with me in paradise that's what righteous assurance looks like it's not this guy lived a good life it's this this guy died a good death you know and actually the call of the Christian gospel is not that we live a good life that we might be righteous but that we might die a good death. And what does a good death look like? A good death is one that's hidden in Christ himself. I die to self, but I rise with Christ. The transformation between the criminal on the cross to the saint in heaven could only ever be the work of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God himself. The cross was this unique exchange for the unrighteous. It was the least equitable exchange in the history of the world, but that's the nature of God's love for each and every one of us. It cannot be measured by the value that we possess, but the measure of what he possesses for us. To receive the love of God in Christ is not only to find forgiveness and right relationship with God, it's also to taste the depths of God's extreme love. This is the bit that I feel we need to reconnect within society at large, trying to do the right thing, trying to make sense of our broken world, sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, whatever it is that you choose to think is right, disconnected from the depths of God's extreme love, in my opinion. Many men and women out there trying to make good decisions, trying to be righteous. But since no one is righteous, how can anyone make righteous decisions? If we haven't been touched by the extreme love of God, how can we be extremely loving? If we don't know that the great exchange is our exchange, how can we ever want to give back fully because we believe 
we're still worth something. We're still, we're going to make it our own way. When actually when we find our worth in who God calls us to be, then we begin to live his way. We begin to respond to him in love and character. And that's a journey that even all of those who've been a Christian for a long time struggle with every day. It's still going, oh my goodness, why am I still making bad decisions? But knowing actually that this isn't about me actualizing myself, but me trying to outwork a righteousness that's mine, not because of my actions, but because of God's love for me. The challenge we face in the human is to receive what's already ours. And I think there's three obvious obstacles. Pride is the first one. This is the sense that I need to save myself. I'm not going to accept the gift of righteousness. I don't accept things I haven't paid for. And this is definitely a gift that you cannot earn. You know, still come across people who are trying to work really, really hard to uh, make God love them. You're going, you know what? That's just not something that you can do. Not because God doesn't love you, but just can't work hard that God loves you. God loves you, then work hard. Doubt is the second thing. This all sounds too good to be true. Maybe you're here tonight as a visitor or a guest, you're thinking, hey, well, I love the sound of this. Sounds amazing, like going to a car dealer and being told that this car is basically free and better than your old car. And you're going to sign me up for some sort of payment plan that's going to mean it actually costs five times more than if I just bought the car right now with my own money. I'm not sure I can believe in Jesus really, that he did this for me, that he was the son of God. But I want to encourage you to say faith only exists in a culture of doubt. Try him out. And the third thing is shame. I'm too bad for the righteousness of God. It's amazing how many people sit in the seats in the church and they think, oh, if only this was for me. Sometimes they sit there for decades. The things I've done exclude me from the love of God, they say. Ah, God loves all these other people. Look at them smiling. Look at them receiving the gifts of the Lord. But the Lord doesn't really love me. I'm just here to keep the seat warm because I've done things that mean I can't access any of this. I'm excluded. But I want to say to you tonight, no one is beyond the reach of God's love and God's restoration. I want to encourage you tonight to acknowledge your disappointment at the righteousness you see in the world. But I also want to encourage you to acknowledge that God's righteousness today on this Easter Sunday Eve is, is real and alive and at work in the world. And actually, when we engage in this great exchange and we see hope restored in righteousness, we can make a difference and we can pray that God would make a difference in the lives of others. We can begin to work for revolution from revelation rather than finding ourselves complicit with a loss of hope. So why don't we stand together as we pray. Maybe you'd like to just open your hands as a sign of your openness to God's spirit. I'm just going to invite the band to come and join me as we just pray. This is just a sign of, I guess, spiritually we're saying, God, I'm, I'm open to this exchange on this Easter Sunday night. And I'd love to pray a prayer that I'd love you, if you feel comfortable, to echo in your own hearts as you maybe decide tonight to 
make that exchange your exchange. If, that, if that's you, then just echo in your heart after me. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I've been seeking to be righteous, but I acknowledge that I, like all, have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I struggle with pride and guilt and shame and doubt. And yet, like that robber on the cross, I long for you, Lord, to make a place for me. And so I want to offer you all of my sin and shame and pray you would take that upon yourself and in exchange give me the righteousness of God. Make me righteous and holy in your sight. Forgive me for all that is past. Renew me, transform me, and may I lead and minister and serve out of an overflow of your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your great promise. Tonight, today, I put my trust in you. Fill me with a knowledge of your grace that would not wobble or waver over these coming days and restore me to hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.